Lord Jesus, thank you that you're a sure and a steady anchor. Thank you that when we get knocked off balance and when life seems wobbly and unsure and unsteady, that you are an anchor who holds steady and firm. You are a rock, you're a shelter that we can count on and we can lean on. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that your grace would come and minister to our hearts for each individual here and their particular needs and their particular concerns and their particular unsteadiness. God, I pray that you would speak to them, whether it be in a a whisper or whether it be in a roar. God, would you speak to your people today from your word? Would you help us to hear you? Would you help us to listen, to not be merely hearers, but to be doers of your word, to be actors upon your word, to obey, to trust and obey you. Make us happy in you. Make us joyful with the joy of Jesus. Help me, I pray, to proclaim your word. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Church family, so good to see you this morning. So thankful for you. So thankful for all the ways that we see God at work in our church. So many evidences of grace all around us. But my encouragement is, let's press on into that maturity, faithfulness of the Lord. Well, in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll we'll be in chapter 8 today. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible. If you're new to Miller Heights Baptist Church, one of our values, one of our distinctives, is that we like to go passage by passage through books of the Bible. So we're doing that right now with the book of Ecclesiastes. And our goal is simply to expose ourselves to all of God's Word and not just pick and choose those passages that we like, that we're comfortable with, but to expose ourselves to all that God has said is helpful and profitable for our lives. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for our instruction, for our training, for our teaching, for our maturity. And so God has a plan for Ecclesiastes 8 to do that for us today. So for the good of our souls and the glory of God, let's read all of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and then we'll consider the message of this chapter. The preacher says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who were given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. 
Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow because He does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, He cannot find it out. This is the word of the living God. May He write its truth on our hearts. Well, there comes a point, I think, in everyone's life when we realize that life is not fair. For me, it was when I was about 16 years old. I'd heard the good news of Jesus and was baptized when I was about 15 years old. And God dramatically changed my life. After, after, you know, just living completely in rebellion to the Lord, the Lord completely changed my heart. And it was evident to everyone around me that I was a new creation in Christ. But shortly after I started following Jesus and had devoted my life to Him, my mom got very sick with an incurable tissue disease, a very aggressive form of lupus. It was absolutely world-shattering to me at the time. After battling and battling and battling for months and months and months, after countless treatments and hospital stays, I was holding my mother's hand when she died. Though so young, I, I looked to everyone else like I was doing fine. I was handling it fairly well. People checked on me at first. I tried to be really strong. The appearance of things was that I was doing fine. I didn't tell anyone at the time, but for months, every single day for months, I would just drive out to her graveside and just stand there absolutely stunned, completely numb. And in my weakest moments, the most common question that I asked in those days was not, why has this happened to me? The most common question I asked was, why has this happened to me now? You see, 
my train of thought was something like this. God, I just committed my life to you. I just started following Jesus, wanting to please you. All these years of sin and rebellion, I was totally fine. Everybody completely healthy. No trouble at all. But now that I devote my life to you, this is what I get? I would ask God things like, God, why my mom? Why not so-and-so's mom? Why not that guy's mom? I mean, he's not following you. Why not him? I realize now how sinful those thoughts were, but at the time, those questions felt completely justified to me. I came face to face with the fact that life is not fair from our perspective. You see, I had this sense of justice inside of me that we all have inside of us that says good people ought to get good things and bad people ought to get bad things, right? Things ought to go well for God's people and things ought to go bad for sinners. I had this sort of weird theology of karma. And it was only by the grace and power of God that I was kept from having a major crisis of faith in those early days of being a Christian. But I know for many people, it is questions like these about the unfairness of life that seem to shake their faith to the core. I mean, let's be honest, friends. We live in a cruel world. We live in a cruel world. I mean, good and godly fathers have trouble finding jobs to provide for their family while sleazy cheaters get promoted at the Fortune 500 company. God-fearing wives long to get pregnant and have a family of their own, but they cannot, while promiscuous young unmarried women have no problem getting pregnant. Sickness and death come to the honest and humble man of God, but the alcoholic lives a long and fruitful and prosperous life. We even have sayings that try to sort of lightly capture this reality that, that, we, that we're mystified by. We say things like, the good guys never win, or the good guys finish last. The preacher of Ecclesiastes observed this maddening fact long before any of us existed. Among the things that made life empty and vain and meaningless to the preacher was that bad things happen to righteous people and good things happen to unrighteous people. Life is not fair. Things are not right. There is injustice and inequality all around us, really. All, as the preacher would say, is vanity. All is vanity. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, The preacher is teasing this out even more. He's testifying to this frustration and perplexity that we face in this life. As he has done throughout this book, the preacher is observing life under the sun. He's evaluating and testing and exploring and recording his findings for us. And he's doing this, not just to tell us what he found, but he's doing this so that we would have wisdom to navigate this same exact world that he observed so long ago. In chapter 8, verse 1, the very first verse of our text this morning, he commends the value of wisdom. He says wisdom is valuable, but the problem is that he's just explained at the end of chapter 7 that people's behavior is puzzling. The schemes of the human heart are endless. Man is not wise. And so in this world, true wisdom is incredibly valuable. 
He says, Wisdom's faith, wisdom makes a man's face shine and change. Wisdom helps us navigate the frustration and futility of this life under the sun. So let me highlight five truths about this life that the preacher highlights for us. He's continuing to show us the way of wisdom in this empty life, and he does so by just observing what life is about. So let me highlight for you five things we learn about life under the sun. Number one, life is outside of our control. Life is outside of our control. So we love to be in control, don't we? We love to be the captain of our own ship, right? When we're in control, we feel like everything is just sort of right in the world, isn't it? No matter what's going on around us, if we're in control, we can just have that smile on our face and say, things are well. But when anything starts to elude our control, when things start to escape our grasp, we get anxious, right? We get unsteady. We get unstable. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us that we're not in control, we are, we are people who are under authority. We are people who are under the authority of another. And the specific authority that he mentions here in verses 2 through 9 is the authority of government and rulers. Now, even though he mentions specifically government, I think this principle applies to every area of authority that we are called to submit to. No one is truly independent. God has made us to live in a world that we are under the authority of others. We are to be submissive to the authority God put over us. So as a king himself, Solomon addresses someone who may have served in the king's court in verse 2. Notice he addresses this person and says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And so he reminds this servant that it is wise to do what the king says. Keep the king's command. Indeed, he says it's a God-given mandate to obey the authority of the king that God has put over us. To challenge his authority is not what we would be seeking to do. That would not be wise. The word of the king, as he says, is supreme. Now, we see this same point spelled out for us in the New Testament, and we see it even clearer. Romans chapter 13, Paul tells us that we should submit to the governing authorities because they are a gift from God to us. Submit to them because God has given them to us as a gift. And remember, Paul is writing in a time when Nero reigned, which is absolutely nothing like we experience today in America. We are to submit to the governing authorities because God has given them to us. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through, 16, 13 through 18 says. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing so you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then notice he adds in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Be submissive to the unjust. Be submissive to the cruel leaders and rulers. Why? Because God has put them over us. Because God, in His grace, has given us government and rulers to lead us, to guide us, to protect us. Now, this is super hard 
for us to hear in 21st century America because we love our independence. We love to think of ourselves as independent people. Expressive individualism is one of the highest virtues in our culture right now. And we hear people talk all the time about, oh, well, that might be your truth, but that's not my truth. Right? We, we want this sort of subjective truth that we can mold to shape our own desires. What we do is we dismiss all other forms of authority that, that are outside of us as oppressive, right? They're, they're just being oppressive. If someone tells us to do something, anything, we, we say our rights have been violated. We've been oppressed. Ecclesiastes pushes back against us in these sinful tendencies in our lives. We are under the authority of another. We are under the authority of government. We are under authority in the church. We're under authority in the workplace. We're under authority in our homes and in every area of our lives. Look at how he fleshes this out in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, the preacher basically says, we don't know what will happen. He basically says, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We think we can predict the future based on the past, but no one knows what the next moment will bring. We aren't in control of what happens to us, he says. And then in verse 8, he lists some specific things we aren't in control of. He says, you're not in power of these things. He says, we can't first retain the spirit, which may be a reference to restraining the wind, same word spirit and wind, or it might refer to our human spirit. Either way, the point's the same. We aren't in control. We can't, we don't have the power to control. Next, he says, we don't even have the power over the day of death. We don't have power over our own death. The day of death will come when we least expect it, he says. Again, in our independence, we hate to hear stuff like this, right? We think as long as we eat right and exercise, don't make stupid choices, that we will live a long and prosperous life. But we can't control when we die. We're not in control of that. Sure, we should use the wisdom God has given us, but we do so with humility, acknowledging I'm not in control. Next, he says, we're not in control of when we go to war or when that war is over. That's the king's decision. You can't discharge yourself from war. You're under the control and authority of one higher than you. And finally, in verse 8, he says, we can't even deliver ourselves from evil. We can't even deliver ourselves from our own wickedness. We think that we can just sort of will our way out of evil whenever we want to, whenever it's convenient for us, but we are captive to our sinful flesh. We are captive to our wickedness. The point is we are people under authority. We aren't in control of our lives. It's a lost cause to try and bend all authority to our will. Like when we try to seize control of our lives, instead of just humbly submitting to the authority that God has placed over us, it's like blowing on a wildfire. It only causes it to spread and spread and spread until we are confronted with our lack of control. Friends, living well in submission to authority is one of the very undervalued means of happiness and contentment in this life under the sun. I just, just observe. I've found the most unhappy people are those who are unhappy with the people in authority over them. Just live in unhappiness. This is one of the most undervalued means of just being happy and content and living wisely in this world is to submit to the authority that God has given to us. I think that's the wisdom the preacher is spitting in verses 2 through 9. He's saying, live as people under authority. You're not in control of your life. Now, sure, 
Is there a time for disobedience and rebellion against authority? Absolutely, but only when that authority calls us to disobey God. We are under the authority ultimately of God and of His, of his Word. And so we are called to submit to authority so long as that submission doesn't mean disobedience to God. We aren't in control of our life. And the quicker we realize that, the happier we will be. And the quicker our wisdom will change the hardness of our face, the preacher says. Here's the second observation that he makes about life. Life is not fair. Number two, life is not fair. Now, this is why I started the sermon with this truth, this sense of injustice that we all at some point come face to face with. Everyone knows that life is not fair, but for some reason everyone thinks it should be. Think about what that tells you about how we were made. Everyone thinks life should be fair, but for some reason we know that it's, it's not. Notice verse 10. Notice what he says. Then I saw the wicked buried... They used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So I think what's happening here is the preacher's at the funeral of a wicked man. He's at the funeral of a wicked person and this, this wicked man was very outwardly religious. He says he would go in and out of the temple. However, even though he was wicked and even though everyone knew he was wicked, he was praised by others. The wicked man was, was given this moving eulogy at his funeral. The preacher says this is vanity. Notice the observation he makes in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So he says one of the reasons people do wicked, one of the do wicked things, one of the reasons people are evil is because it seems like there's no punishment or consequences for evil. They just go about their wickedness without any punishment. Imagine you go to two funerals in one day. Two funerals in one day. The first funeral you go to is for an unbeliever who lived a very selfish life. You go to this funeral and the pastor at the funeral talks about how nice he was and how caring he was and how great of a dad and husband he was. Later that day, you go to the second funeral. This funeral is of for one of your fellow church members, who you, know, who you knew to be a kind and generous and serving man. And the pastor at the funeral steps up and talks about how nice he was and how caring and how good of a dad and husband he was. There's just something not right about that, right? It's not fair. The wicked shouldn't be praised like the righteous. The wicked man should get punished for his wickedness. The righteous man should be praised. The wicked man should be condemned. You see, when evil deeds aren't immediately struck, when evil people aren't immediately struck down by lightning, it should be absolutely amazing to us. When someone does wickedness and he's not immediately punished, we should all, we should all just marvel at that. You see, friends, when evil deeds aren't immediately punished, we, we assume that we can just get away with it. We assume that we can just do whatever we want without consequences, right? This should be astonishing to us. But friends, our God is patient. The reason verse 11 is true, that wickedness isn't punished immediately, is because our God is patient. Our God is slow to anger. Listen, He will punish all evil, but He doesn't do it immediately. And because He doesn't do it immediately, what do sinful humans do? 
They presume upon God's mercy, and they continue in their evil deeds. So if you're, if you're listening to me right now, and you're not trusting in Jesus for your salvation and seeking to live your life pleasing to him, you need to understand something. People may like you. They may praise you. But God says you're wicked. And your wickedness will not go unpunished forever. Like it may seem for a time like you're prospering in this life of wickedness. But God will bring justice. Notice the frustration of the preacher in verse 14. He says, there's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Again, I say this also is vanity. (laughs) This very frustration with injustice in the world has caused many people to question if God really exists. That may be you today. You might be asking, how can there be a God ruling over a world with such injustice in it? Life just isn't fair. Well, I just want you to observe, the preacher saw this long before we did. He, he says we shouldn't expect life under the sun to be fair, according to our definition of fairness. I'm going to come back to this point in the conclusion, but let's see what else the preacher says about this life. He says, third... Life is a mystery. Life is a mystery. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this point because we've already seen this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but just notice what the preacher says in verses 16 and 17. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The preacher says, life is a mystery. We can't figure it out with our minds. No matter how wise we are, no matter how many degrees we have by our name, no matter how many books we have read or written, we cannot figure it out. I think the preacher is saying this. He's saying God's ways are higher than our ways and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. See, we are creatures. God is creator. And we should expect there to be some things in this life that we don't quite understand, that don't seem to make sense to our minds. To assume that we can get some kind of solid understanding of God's ways is to live in arrogance. Our job is to trust God, not to question God's ways. I know this to be I know this to be a frustrating thing because I feel it in my own life, but if you're one of those with a philosophical mind where you just want to figure it all out, where you just want to have all the answers, you're not satisfied with all the ambiguity, listen to Ecclesiastes say to you, life is a mystery. It will frustrate you to no end if you try to put life in a cage and say this is what it's all about. And so what do we do with all these unanswered questions that we have? The answer is we live by faith with contentment in what God has provided. God has revealed himself to us in his word. He has revealed everything he wants us to know about him in his word. And we trust him. We fear and we live in contentment in what he has revealed to us. Friends, there are many mysteries hidden from us in this life. But we know that God is sovereign 
He knows the end from the beginning. Ours is to fear God, to trust God, even if we don't have all the answers that we think we need. Fourth, observation about life. So we've said life is frustrating. We've said life is outside of our control. We've said life is a mystery. We've said life is not fair. And so we're just all going to go home with this sort of Debbie Downer sermon. No, number four, life is for joy. Life is for joy. Verse 15 should sound very familiar to everyone who's been here for this Ecclesiastes series. Here's another one of the have joy passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. The first thing to notice about verse 15 is to make sure you have clear in your mind the truth that the days of your life are in the hands of God. You see that at the end of verse 15? God has given us the number of our days under the sun. The preacher saying the duration of our lives is controlled and planned and ordained by God. There's nothing that can thwart God's will for the days of your life. Every day is a gift from our gracious God. Every day we have is a gift. I remember one of our longtime church members, Glenn Maddox, used to say this almost every time I saw him. Whether he was in the hospital or at church or in the grocery store, he would say, every day is a gift from God. And Every day is a gift. Every one of these vain days of our lives, every one of these empty days of our life is a gift, and it is to be lived in joy, the preacher says. Eat, drink, and do work with joy. In the submission to authority, in the injustice of life, in the mystery of our days, the preacher commends joy to us. Listen, life is not fair. Life is perplexing. It is frustrating to no end. But still we are to live with joy in our Creator and Redeemer. And friends, please evaluate yourself. If your life and labor is not characterized by joy, something is seriously wrong. Don't go another day without evaluating this in you. If your life is more chore than cheerful, there is something not right. If life is more drudgery than delight, there is something deeply wrong. Because listen, joy is possible even in the midst of pain and uncertainty. The reason I know that is because God commands us to rejoice in our suffering. He commands us to rejoice always with no qualifications, always in everything. God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. And so joy is possible because we know the outcome. We can endure anything in this life under the sun because we know that our God is for us. He is not against us in Jesus. Listen, we don't have joy because of things we have or don't have. We don't have joy because we understand life or think everything is right in this world. We have joy because we have a treasure that is not under this son. Life is for joy. Life is for joy in Jesus, our Savior. And so evaluate your joy today. Are you known as a joyful person? 
Do people know you as someone who spreads happiness? Do you eat with joy? Do you drink with joy? Do you work with joy? This is the life God has given you. These are the days that have been gifted to you by God. And so the preacher commends joy. This is what life is for. Pursue your joy in Jesus all the days of this life under the sun. Fifth and final observation about this life under the sun. Number five, this life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. Yes, life is outside of our control. It is unfair. It is a mystery. But this life is not the only life there is. So I think for the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says something positive about the life after this life under the sun. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, remember he's not punished immediately, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But, verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked, neither will He prolong His days like a shadow, because He does not fear before God. So it seems to me what's going on here is the preacher stops merely observing life under the sun. See, most of what's gone before chapter 8 has been him saying, I see this, I see this, I see this, I observe this, look at this. I think for a moment he puts down those glasses. He stops observing for just a moment and he says something theological that he is sure of. Notice, in fact, the phrase, I saw, is replaced by the phrase, I know, in verse 12. No longer is he saying, I see, but here he says, I know this to be true. And so, Here's a truth he's confident of. Even if he can't analyze it with his senses, even if he can't point to it to see it, he says, this I know to be true. What does he know? He says he knows it will be well with those who fear God because they fear God. Remember, fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. And those who fear God are promised blessing. And so even if the one who fears God is treated like a wicked person in this life, The preacher is confident it will ultimately be well with him. And he's confident that it will not be well with the wicked. Even though it may seem like the wicked are being blessed in this life, it will not be well with them in the judgment. The very last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. And so that's the truth the wicked person hasn't considered. They haven't considered the justice of God. That God will one day right all wrongs. God's justice demands He punish all evil. And so friends, because of this truth, we don't have to have perfect justice now. We don't have to have perfect fairness. We don't have to have all the answers in this life under the sun because this life is not all there is. So that's what the preacher says in this passage. But honestly, when I study this passage, when I think about what he's saying, I think this passage should leave us a little wobbly, a little unsure when we come to it. Because listen, we shouldn't immediately identify ourselves 
with the righteous person in this passage. I know that's what you did because it's what I did too. You come to this passage, you immediately want to think, oh, it's going to go well with the righteous. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't fear God as we should. We have never feared God as we should. And so when it says it will not be well with the wicked, we should tremble. Because we are the wicked. Our sins are many and they are offensive to God. So honestly, the most confounding truth in this life is not the unfairness of the righteous getting what the wicked deserve and vice versa. The most confounding truth is that God would forgive any one of us of our sin and promise that it would be well with us for all eternity. That's the perplexing truth. That's the truth that should leave you dumbfounded and, and just a little unsteady. That, that it will not go well with the wicked should make perfect sense to us. We, we get that. The wicked, it should not go well with the wicked. We expect that. But that it will go well for any sinner is what's really unfair. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the most unfair truth in all of history. The only righteous one, the only one who truly ever feared God was the Lord Jesus Christ. He deserves everything to go well for Him for all eternity because He's, a, he's sinless. But you know what happened to Him, right? Jesus was put to death by His own Father. He was beaten and flogged and crucified and He deserved none of it. And you know what? Jesus never protested that he was being treated unfairly. The only one who deserved eternal blessing being treated completely unfairly and never once did he protest. He never cried out against the injustice of the cross. He willingly bore his Father's wrath in the place of sinners like us so that it could go well with us for eternity. You see, if you want to demand fairness in this life, you'll never truly love the gospel. Because only when you embrace how unfairly we have been treated can we begin to obey verse 15 and have joy in this life. See, the only way we can say it will be well with me, that it is well with my soul in eternity, is because God, the Son, was treated unfairly in our place. He was crushed for my iniquities. See, I'm the wicked man who's been treated far better than I deserve. I'm the wicked man who should have been struck down in my wickedness every day of my life. I'm not the upright man who's been treated like the wicked man. See, that's what I didn't understand when I was 16 years old. I assumed that it should go well with me when I, assumed, when I should have assumed the exact opposite of that and been eternally grateful for all the good things that God has promised to me in Jesus. See, this is the truly perplexing truth of the universe. How can I say it will be well with me? How can I say that it will be well for all eternity with my soul? The only way I can ever say that is because of Jesus. You see, when people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Which is a question people are asking all around us. And just last week, I saw one of my friends on Facebook ask this same question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the problem with that question is it's the wrong question. See, a better question is, why does anything good 
happen to bad people like us? Why does anything good happen in this life? See, that you and I are not burning in hell right now is the most unfair thing in all the universe. That you and I get to have fellowship with God for eternity is a gross injustice. And yet it is true because Jesus bore our wickedness in his own body so that God could be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in King Jesus. So the main application of this passage about the frustration of life is to trust Jesus as your only righteousness. You're the wicked person who should be punished. Jesus is the righteous person who deserves all things to go well for him. And yet he got what you deserve so that you could get what he deserved. So trust Jesus today. But let me close with an initial application thought, five application thoughts. And I'm just going to do these really quickly. I'm just going to mention them and not explore them. Number one, submit to the authorities God has put over you. Number two, let the unfairness of this life remind you of your salvation. Number three, be okay with mystery. You don't have to have all the answers. Number four, pray for more joy. Oh, that's a, that's a prayer God would love to answer in this moment. Pray for more joy. And five, don't love this world or the things of this world because this life is not all there is. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is true that we have all of the blessings promised to us in Jesus, that we have the promise that it will be well with us all because of Jesus. I pray for those in this room who are not trusting in Jesus, who are playing games with you. God, I pray you would arrest their hearts, arrest their attention in this moment and get them to trust you for the good of their soul and for the glory of your name. And God, I pray that we would all be able to say it is well with my soul, not just in this moment, praise God it is in this moment, but that we would be able to say that for all eternity, that it would be well with our soul. We give ourselves to you, Lord. Give us joy. Fill us with your joy. And I pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.